Good morning. Whew, that's quite a party. Thank you, Dave. Um, and, uh, and honestly, if you get a second, do thank Dave for the amount of work that he has poured into uh, uh, investing in that building, getting done and done well. He has spent countless hours doing that as a, as a ministry to the church and to God's kingdom, so we're so appreciative of that. And, uh, and then to uh, lead us in worship like that, man. Um, okay, so <clears throat> uh, as we jump into John 14, remembering um, this, this section of Scripture, um, which, is, which is relatively unique in John, we don't see this type of detail about this, this narrative in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Here at the Last Supper, here as Jesus is having his last really in-depth teaching time with his followers, with his 11, Judas Iscariot has left, and and that's, I mean, it is, it is so tightly packed, and there's so many little, little details. Now, at the same time, I want to warn you against, though we get trapped, if you're not careful, if you only are only looking at this on Sunday mornings as we discuss it together, you're going to get caught up like I have a temptation to in the microcosm of just these few verses. Remember that this is in the midst of a much longer conversation. In fact, at the end of today, Jesus is going to ha- John is going to have a line, he taught these things I have taught you is going to be this line. If we're not careful, we'll think these, these things meaning the last five verses. No, no. All the way from this entire conversation and probably all the way in through the book of John. These things that Jesus has been teaching. So my encouragement to you is that as you're coming on Sundays, you're also reading the book of John outside of here to get, a, to get the full picture of what when we look at a tiny part of it. And, um, and we, we often unpack that a little bit too. But just make sure that that's going on as we study this. Um, Jesus referencing these, the, what we would call Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture concepts um, that he's going to un- unwrap for us today. And we're going to see some of this played out as, um, as Jesus is always intertwining the Scripture passages um, from what we would call the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures are always intertwined there. And Jesus is teaching us how to read those and understand those and engage with those as well. Um, so we're going to pick up in John 14, um, starting in verse 20, which was our transition from last week into this week. So we always make that connection. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And continue to listen. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So again, easy first little comment is on the phrase, has my commandments and keeps them. Jesus is making a very clear delineation between those who merely have his commandments versus those who have them and keep them. Having his commandments does not mean you love him. Having his commandments and keeping them do. Now, Now this would be just set up, wouldn't it, for kind of the traditional um, Baptist behavioral modification sermon, right? I was just camped right here on like, listen, you have his words, now do it. And a little hellfire and brimstone mixed in. The truth is that yet again, still Jesus is talking in terms of identity. If you have them and you don't do them, you apparently don't love him. It, it, it works both directions as we, as we play this out. Whoever has my commandment, and this word keeps, fascinating word, who keeps my commandments, we think, oh, he must mean obey. But it's way beyond that. 
The word here means like to keep as in to watch over, to keep like you would refer to a keep being in the middle of a castle, a safe place, a hidden place, a, a place that has guards over it to watch them, like, like watchmen in the night type of things, to watch over them, to protect them, to guard them, to observe them. Or perhaps if you're a King James fan, to hide them, to hide them in your heart, to keep them someplace safe. That's the terminology Jesus is using, Psalm 119. Uh, verse 11, I have stored up, the ESV says. All of the King James people know that that's the word there. I have hidden your word. I've hidden your word. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, here's the question, though. Protect his word in what way? To keep it, to know it, and to keep it from what? To protect it from what? What do we need to protect his teaching and his commands from? So a little group participation here. What do we need to be keeping? What, when, we, when you see that, we need to be protecting his teaching, his word, from what? Okay, from the world. Okay, good. Because the world has a teaching that often it is, is often in opposition to his teaching. Good. From? From false teaching, from people who are even from a pulpit going to teach something that is not in alignment with that. And may God protect me. All of us, Anybody can do that by accident, but may, may God protect this pulpit from that. What else? Okay, I think, I think, so our selfishness, our natural tendencies, let me tell you that the main threat to God's word in my life, by far, is me. I have preferences. There's things I want God's word to say. There's things I want God's word to teach. There's things I don't want it to teach. There's stuff there I don't like. We all have these, these preferences. Again, back to this kind of message of autonomy versus authority, this is still that continued message. Is it mine to do with as I see fit, or is it someone else as a higher authority to engage with? We have them. And by the way, it's okay to have preferences. I don't mean to imply that autonomy is wrong, but autonomy that is not submitted is not Christian. So autonomy that is not submitted or devoted to God is sin. For a Christian, that would be, that would be wrong for us to hold on to these. We have them, but we have no rights to them as Christians. In our staff meeting time each week, um, we have a, a period of time at the end, and we've been doing this for years, where there's like a 10-minute countdown, and each, you, you get a question, and then each staff member each week, a different staff member answers that question. And so there's, there's been a number of them, and some of them are kind of silly, and some of them are pretty serious or whatever. Um, and, and this one, the series we've just been through, has been the question of, um, what is your favorite scripture? What's your favorite passage from scripture? And it's been super intriguing and eye-opening as essentially a room full of professional Christians talk about what is it, what scripture passages, and it's amazing how many of us connected to important passages in our youth or in our childhood that have stuck with us, that continue to come back to us. And this last time was Elizabeth Smith's, it was her turn, so her 10-minute countdown started, and she took us to Romans chapter 12. Now, a couple things. One, as of, as of Tuesday, Elizabeth Smith will have been with the church for seven years um, with us, serving at the church. So that's pretty exciting and very cool. I don't, she's probably doing something. She's, she rarely gets to make it in here, so she has to listen to the sermons later, but, um, uh, or at least she says she does. I mean, like... <laughs> Who knows, right? But um, 
but as I understand it from Hebrew scripture, that means I think this is the year we have to set her free. I'm not, I think the seventh year is that year. I'm hoping that it's the 49th. I've got to go back and study that. Um, uh, okay, so um, hers was Romans 12. She took us to Romans 12, which, which struck her when she was a youth, a young person, was taught to her, and it fits perfectly in exactly this message we're talking about. Romans 12 Verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice, in an era when there is such debate, just like then there was such a debate over who killed Jesus. You remember when the Passion came out and there was this huge debate over who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it my sins? Was it? And, and we said, like, I got a crazy, here's a crazy thought. Let's, what does the Bible say? And the Bible says in John 10 that Jesus lays down his life. It's insulting to imply that someone could take his life from him. This was his decision. He laid down his life. He specifically says in John 10, no one takes it from me. He could not be more clear about this. Who killed Jesus? Jesus did. And we'll see that, by the way, in John, we're going to see this beautiful list play out. As Jesus, remember he kicked over a domino when he sent, who who sent Judas? Judas. Oh, Jesus did. That's right. That's who sent Judas to betray him, was Jesus. And we're going to see his hand as, as, the, as the force behind all of this. Anyway, so back to this question, whose body is it? When we have this debate in our culture right now about, well, whose body is this? And, and whose body? Well, the answer for a Christian is, it's the body that I submit as an act of sacrifice to God. An unsubmitted body is sinful for a Christian. We don't get to make those choices. That's the whole authority concept. Now, of course, that's not the world's philosophy. We just talked about that. That's okay. Let the world believe what they want to. But Scripture is very clear. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, that's, it's the natural thing to do. It's the right thing to do that we would go, no, no, not my body, God's. God gets to make these calls. I have to follow his preferences in regards to this. It's amazing how often Bible offers a very clear answer to a very tough cultural question. Not for the culture, because the culture is not going to respect that answer, but for us, it certainly does. Again, that idea that we, we are to be following him in the midst of this. Now, as we look at this, I am in the Father, you are in me, I am in you. The one who knows and keeps my commandments loved me. The one who loves me is loved by my Father, and I love him, and made manifest to me. Now, I think... The, the, and this is where we're going to really camp a lot. The intimacy of this passage is intriguing to me. And I'm going to talk about what I mean here in just a second. There's, this, this, um, there's a simplistic part of this that's easy to understand. He who loves me will be loved by my father. In the midst of this, that core is not hard to grasp. Any father in the room, any parent in the room, you understand this. Someone who loves your child is loved by you. Yes? If someone loves your child and invests in your child and has a positive impact in your child, they now have a, essentially a blank check with you. This is how, it, any of you who have done much discipling of children and young people, you know this. If you've invested in someone and in someone's child and you've changed that child's life in a positive way and they have done better, all you have to do essentially is ask that parent, right? Isn't that how this works? Same exact picture that's here. And by the way, the reverse is probably somewhat true too. Um, I am not naturally an angry person. That's, I, that's, I have plenty of faults. That's not one of my, I just, I, I mean, I don't naturally get angry, right? 
I can remember the handful of times, I actually can remember, they're rare enough that I can remember the times I have truly gotten angry, probably in the last 10 years. I can remember them independently. One of them was when Mark was about seven, and he tried to sit at a table of nine-year-olds, and they told him, no, because you're seven. And I, I, it was 100% self-control that kept me from pitching over the table and thrashing a bunch of nine-year-olds. The, the level of rage that I felt internally, you reject my son, I hope one of you turns up in my class someday. I hope one of you ends up in one of my class. I will fail you with no, like you're gonna walk in class, I'm gonna go, F, don't come back. Not letting my son sit with you. What are you, like, and it was, it's just a lot of strong, there's a lot of strong emotion with this. Part of this is just that simple. God the Father going, you love my son? Listen, you love my son and I love you. That's how this works. Now we know because this same author, John, wrote a letter in 1 John in which he makes clear if you have any question like, wait a minute, so God only loves me because I love his son or because, only because I love and obey him does he love me? No, no. This is a family relationship. We talked about that last week. This is an identity adoption relationship. So of course the love is, is all over the place. It's a big mishmash of loving and obeying. And, but th- this same author, John, makes it very clear that before we loved him, he loved us. So there's no question about that. That's not, he's not contradicting that concept. But here's what's fascinating that Jesus is teaching, is this idea of intimacy. And so let's talk a little bit about that, because the, the world has kind of messed up this word for us. Intimacy is often used, especially in church settings sometimes, as a euphemism for sex. And, and intimacy, certainly there is such a thing as sexual intimacy, but intimacy is when you have two intelligences, two minds, two souls that get to know each other, that when you walk someone, when you guide someone on your identity and they guide you into their identity, that is intimacy. The intimacy is you get to know me better and better. I introduce you to me. I introduce you to aspects of myself. So as, you, as I guide you to know me and you guide me to know you, that is intimacy. Obviously, that can apply to sexuality, even using that exact same language. And that's why God created a special covenant for sexual intimacy, because intimacy is powerful and the sexual expression of it is very, very powerful. And so that's not God limiting something, it's God targeting something. It's him protecting, keeping something, Right? So, and so as he, as, he, as he defines these boundaries for us, but, but intimacy is for, for all Christians to get to know each other. That, that's, that's totally a normal thing. Friends have intimacy, and, and of course spouses do, and parents and children do, and, and family does. Like That's part of it, us getting to know each other. And part of that is because as we get to know each other, we begin to see the fingerprints of the divine in each other that the Jesus in me becomes more and more engaged with the Jesus in you, which causes me to become more and more engaged with Jesus. This is not a competition. It's amazing to me, the staff will tell you, although there's a, and my children would too, that there's a handful of words that trigger a lecture from me. Um, one of the things that, that the staff will tell you gets me most up in arms most quickly is when there's a teacher who insists on using false dichotomies. And I recently read a book in which a guy sets up a false dichotomy and he says... The Christian life is not about a vertical relationship, it's about a horizontal relationship. 
I'm like, listen, leave out the first half of that sentence. Of course Christianity is about a horizontal relationship and, not or, and a vertical relationship. Not only are those not in competition with each other, but John 13 and 14 have just shown us they are so intertwined as that they can't be divided from each other. Jesus says, you want to know me, you obey my commandments, right? That's how you show love to him as you obey his commandments. Well, we're in John 14. What is the commandment of John 13? This is my commandment that you love one another. So you want to get to know Jesus? Well, then you obey his commandments. What's the commandment, the urgent commandment that he just gave? Love one another. So in loving one another, we show our love to him and thus grow in intimacy with him. And he, crazy word here, makes himself manifest. John uses this word twice in the, in the Gospel of John, and it's in these two verses. That's it. Every other time you see the word show, or you see the word reveal, or you see the word see, or something like that, it's different Greek words. He sets up a very specific Greek word for this passage that I am going to manifest myself. This is, this is beautiful language. We want to take this, I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you, and we want to draw kind of a Venn diagram showing like, so if he's in me and I'm in him, and then, and then this means I'm, yeah, that's laying pipe. We're not laying pipe, we're talking about poetry. This is, this is a beautiful thing here that's being described here. This is intimacy. This is a nearness and a closeness and a, and a drawing together a relationship that's unique and special, especially among the divine. No God does this. Okay, let's go back to that statement of that if you love me, my Father will love you. All right? Talking in terms of intimacy. Why would God open himself up to this? Why would God open himself up to loving us in the way we love the Son? Why would he do that? That creates bad feelings. It makes you want to kick over tables and beat up nine-year-olds. These are hard feelings. Who wants that? God does. This is, this is not some cute thing we say in church. God wants an intimate relationship with us. That's not cute. It's the truth. It's, it's mind-blowing that any God would want this. This is not normal among gods. You study the other gods None of them are intrigued in knowing you intimately and lovingly. I mean, some of the, some of the Greek and Roman gods had some stuff in mind with what they wanted to do with us, but it, it was not intimate, and it certainly wasn't loving. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a power in this. This is distinct. This is why Christianity, you often hear Christians describe the difference between a religion and a relationship. Listen, the truth is, of course, that we are a religion. There are religious aspects to what we do. There are certain behaviors and, and, and actions and traditions that we are bound to. The word religion means bound. It comes from the concept of being bound to things. There are certain things we are bound to. At 840, we had a communion service. Last week, we did baptism. Those are weird. Those are weird things that Christians do. We, we, we get up on Sunday morning. Why? And we come here and we sing Guys, that a common thing for you? You like get together with people and sing? That a normal thing for you? Not me. That's a weird thing that we do. We get together and we sing. And then we sit and just listen to someone talk. These are weird religious things that we do. There's nothing wrong with that. However, as merely a religion, Christianity fails. 
as do all other mere religions. This is what makes, we're gonna, you're going to see, we, we, we understand this idea of a conversion. You're lost and then you're found. You're alone and then you're together. All that we get that. We can, we can understand that line, but understand Christianity is more than about jumping through hoops or obeying some rules. It is, this is what we mean we say it's a relationship. This is a continuous, growing manifestation of Jesus Christ with us. This word manifestation, I tried to study it some this week and understand it more and more, and I'm not a Greek scholar, and so I've, I'm always having to ask other people to give me insights. So John, using this word, it's not, it's not super clear why this special word, but it seems there seems to be a connection of experiencing Jesus in relationship with the Spirit. One guy said that it was, it's like um, that there's a sense of the holy, of breath in the middle of this word. They're like being connected to Jesus Christ in the Spirit. As if the only those who can accept the scandalous love of Jesus through the breath of the Spirit and through that Spirit sacrifice for him. It seems more personal than the other words, more immediate than the other words. Paul, and I mean our Paul, not the Apostle Paul, um, Paul said he thinks it has to do with the actual presence of the messenger. That's what makes it different. Is it's not just I got a message in the mail, but that the messenger came to me. The person who's delivering the message came to me themselves to give me the message, to make manifest, to make clear, to know this person. Again, whatever the actual reference here, exactly why John uses this word, here's what seems clear. That he's trying to use a word here that communicates to us presence, intimacy, knowing, connected. This is the idea that John is trying to help us see through the teaching of Jesus here. That, that, that we are connected to him. There's an, an intimacy. This is a God who actually wants to relate to us who wants to take us by the hand and guide us through his identity, to introduce himself to us more and more all the time. Look at this about me and get to know this about me and, and check this out about me and let me tell you about this in me. And, and here's what's wild. He also loves to hear about us from us. The mechanics of prayer make no sense to me. Why prayer is something that we do and how it works when you have an all-knowing God there's a, there's a logical collision there that happens, but only from an information perspective, not from an intimacy perspective. From an intimacy perspective, having someone tell you a story they've told you before, having a child tell you all about an experience that you were there for, that's not strange. Hearing their version of events, and so, and so God wants to hear from me as well because of the intimate power of that. He actually desires this. Here's what's crazy. And he knows about every inch of the island of my identity. He knows parts of my island I don't know. He knows the darkest, the most shameful, the most embarrassing, the things I would hide from any human. He knows and yet still wants to know us and get to know us and get to know him. This is not normal. It's not a thing God's do. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second. But does he, is he talking some, some of what he's talking about here is clearly what we saw in John 14, 19, yet a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live. This idea that I'm going away, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die, and the world won't see me. And then when I come back, the world still won't see me, but some of you will. Clearly that's part of it. 
Is it more spiritual and in-depth here, this idea, and, and preaching uh, commentaries preferred this, obviously, um, that, 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 we would, that we would experience him in some new and powerful way from this point forward. And, and if, if you've been under my teaching long enough, you know that my answer is going to be, well, probably both. Of course, Jesus is referencing the fact that he's going to be gone for a while and the world won't see him, but his followers will. And then his followers will experience this Holy Spirit, experience him in new ways, and the world will not. Possibly both. It struck me as we're looking at Judas, what Judas, not Iscariot, says here that in Philip's earlier question, referencing back to the experience of Moses with Yahweh, that Philip says, show us the Father. And what I realized was it's natural for me to want to kind of tease about the fact that Philip is clearly not understanding what's going on here. That he, he's, Philip didn't get it at the beginning. Philip was the one who got tested with the feeding of the 5,000, and Philip wasn't getting who Jesus was. And here we are at the very end, and Philip still isn't getting who Jesus is. But this is what struck me. Listen to, the teach, listen to this from Exodus, that passage, when Moses asks to see the Lord. Uh, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, meaning God, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, here's what struck me about, before I tease Philip too hard, is the question, Am I asking for this? Am I willing to ask to see the Father? Am I willing to ask for Jesus Christ to make manifest the divine to me? Because I will tell you, that scares me. I'm scared to hear God speak directly like that. I'm a little nervous about that. I don't know about you, but that kind of thing makes me a little nervous. He's not a tame lion, right? That kind of thing, that kind of thing could probably rightfully should. And and Judas, not Iscariot, is also asking the same kind of questions we are. What do you mean by manifest? And how is that special to us? This is what Judas says in 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to me, excuse me, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, who is Judas, not Iscariot? Um, you don't see his name show up a lot um, in Scripture, um, in Matthew 10, we see the list of the disciples in Matthew 10, 2 through 4. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother and James the son of Zebedee and John his brother and Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So where's Judas not Iscariot? He wasn't in that list. Traditionally, he's connected to Thaddeus, who we know as Thaddeus. Um, so they had lots of names it was not uncommon, as it is in a lot of cultures, for the Jewish people to have multiple different names. In fact, in that list, you saw them. They had multiple names. You have Peter, or Simon, called Peter, for example, and others we see in there. They all have, they have nicknames. Um, we see you know, Thomas Didym called Didymus, which means twin. We, we don't know exactly what all these different names mean, and they have all these different nicknames and camp names and, and all these type of stuff that goes with their identity as they're engaging with this stuff. And so Thaddeus apparently was also called Judas, which was John's preferred name for him, was to call him Judas, not Iscariot, um, to clarify. Philip says he wants to understand, Ju Ju Philip wants to see, and Judas wants to understand this concept of being manifested. This idea of him experiencing us, us experiencing him. And look at the phrase that Jesus says back. This should make the hair stand up in the back of our neck just a little bit. 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, first, easy one. Anytime in our lives that we go, I'm not experiencing the presence of God, I think this passage teaches us that we should always ask the question, is there an obedience problem? Is there a rebellion problem in my heart? Is it that, that, that God is present with me, but, I, that, but in my sin, I have so cauterized my nerves that I'm not experiencing him? That he is not made manifest to me because I can't receive it. The radio dial is turned to the wrong station. I'm not hearing it. That's something that we always have to ask ourselves in our lives. And we go, I'm just, when someone says, I'm, it, it, that's, you, you've been there, you've had family members, you've had friends who have had a crisis of faith. And by crisis of faith, that means they're engaging in something in a relationship that they know God wouldn't want them to do, and they don't want to stop doing it. So either their faith has to change or their behavior has to change, so they have a crisis of faith. That's the super common. When you have conversations with people who have fallen away from Christ or fallen away from the church, incredible how often it is that what you discover is there's something they want to do that they know God doesn't approve of, so they have to have a crisis of faith. That's their only option. Certainly we need to be there. And when, you, when we go like, I don't feel like I'm engaging with God at the intellectual level or at the spiritual level or physical level or emotional level, whatever that is. And that's different for each of us, by the way. Some people don't ever have an emotional experience of God. That's not required. It's not biblical to, that you have to have that. You don't have to have a, a logical, coherent conversation with God. That doesn't have to be part of our experience. It's just, that's going to be about us. If you're more emotions-oriented, you're more likely to move in and out of feeling the presence of God than someone who's more intellectually focused or logically focused, who's more likely to have kind of an ongoing internal conversation with yourself and with God. And, and that's, that's, all, that's about us. It's not about him. He meets us where we are. But when we're not experiencing at any level the manifestation of God in our lives, a first question is, am I loving Jesus Christ by obeying him? If not... There's probably sin in my life that I need to get out of the camp. I need to get this sin out of the camp and make no provision. That's, that's certainly true. But that's not where I want to just really dig into this. Here's what strikes me about this. We have two creations. We have the invisible creation and we have the visible creation. We have the spiritual creation and we have the physical creation. And, and throughout all of human history, pretty much all humans know this. It's very rare, even still today, it's rare. There's a level of denial going on now that's a little more common in young people, but, but this is, it's, still, it's still just denial. We, we pretty much all intuitively get there's a spiritual creation and, an, and a physical or visible creation. Where do those things overlap? Where does the invisible and the visible, where does the spiritual and the physical, where do they overlap? What do we call those places where those things overlap. Guess? Throughout history, humans build them everywhere. We call them temples. Temples are where the divine and the human overlap. The human creation and the divine creation, where they touch, we typically call that a temple. You can see how God has revealed this concept to his people Throughout time. Look at how God expands this. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Interestingly enough, that word dwell, abide, is also the word tabernacle. To tabernacle with us. We've turned that into a noun, but at one point that was a verb. To tabernacle with us. To temple 
with us. God, God didn't need a temple. He was one of the few gods who's like, I don't, I don't need a building. A tent's fine. We'll go with a tent. Give a place for you to come to be in my presence where these two worlds will overlap. Let them make me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. Leviticus 26, 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. This was even kind of funnier. This is like the roommate relationship, right? I'm going to live with you and try not to grow sick of you. That's the, it didn't always work out, by the way, for God. Uh, sometimes he grew sick of them. Ezekiel 37, 26, and 27, Ezekiel begins to catch the vision from God of a new type of covenant, a new type of dwelling. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary, same concept, in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to how Peter begins to interpret this covenant. In 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Now let's go back to that. And we will come to him and make our home with him. This is clearly temple language. We will come and dwell with him. Here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. The place where the divine, where God and the physical creation touch is now us. We are his temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, pretty subtle. Paul is very subtle about communicating this idea to us. Sarcastic. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? There's no need for a temple on the top of a mountain in Jerusalem or any place else. We are now the living stones. The idea of a temple, so here's what's so sad, is we've turned this idea of a temple as humans into a place that is distinct from us. That was never the concept. The idea of a temple was a place where God comes to live with us. And yet because religion can only understand a temple in the other direction, that we go to God and we, we follow the eightfold path in an effort to somehow make God happy with us, or we follow the five pillars and we go to some temple and we bang on the door and we beg for Allah to let us in, maybe that's the idea that we've turned a temple into. Too many people treat church like that, which is nuts. This is not, ladies, just, I, I, some of you are going to be upset by this. This is not God's house. We are God's house. This is God's house right now because you are here. That's what makes it the church. What is the church is us. We make up the church. And, and you go like, well, yes, but this is his sanctuary. No, it's not. We are. We are his sanctuary. He abides in us. This is the idea that, that God dwells, not I'm going to dwell with my people in their midst in a building. I'm going to dwell with my people in their midst in their heart. I'm going to write my law on their heart. I'm going to live with, that's, guys, that's us. This is a God who cohabitates. Not okay for humans. Yes, okay for God. God cohabitates with us. He incarnates with us. 
um, talking with Ann Livesay between the services, and she was like, when you said, where does God, where does God dwell, where does it overlap? She, was, she said, I was thinking the incarnation. I'm like, yes, yes, Jesus Christ is who broke this open, who made this path. Jesus himself coming and living as a man, thereby opening the door to God living, not in a building in our midst, which would be cool, but instead living in us as the building. We are the living stone and we are the temple. That is intimate. So it's, it's, it's too, listen, if, if your idea of, of pursuing God is to come to church, well, that's, that's like storing your kids or your wife or your husband in a building somewhere and going and visiting them for a couple of hours a week. That is not an intimate relationship. How intimate? Listen to this. Revelation 3.20. This is an intimacy passage. This is the distinction between, so again, this idea of conversion, we get that. And everyone wants to turn this into a conversion passage. It is so much more than a conversion passage. Here you have Jesus writing a letter to a church in, in, um, uh, in, in, here in, in this passage of Revelation. He's writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so in this letter, he says to this church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What door? Us. This isn't a temple door that we've gone to and we're pounding on. No, no. He's not that foolish. He comes to us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Me with him, him with me, hanging out. This is a God who hangs out with his creation. I'm just going to, I don't have an agenda. I'm just going to come have dinner. Let's just hang out. When we get to John 21, the significance of some of these concepts are, are, are going to be brought home at a new level. But this, this picture of a God who dwells with us. Conversion is cool. Intimacy is way cooler. Conversion is a, is a marriage ceremony. Intimacy is a life together of him abiding with us, dwelling with us, getting to know us and letting us get to know him. It's... it's <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. Like the language fails to put this together. The, in, the ongoing incarnation with us as his temple. The church is us about learning together, growing together. Remember that stones analogy? The, the idea of first, uh, first Peter, what Peter's saying is like, not only, so you are a temple, we are individually a temple with priests, that's us, doing holy sacrifices like in Romans 12, that's us. And we're also living stones of a bigger temple, that's us. What makes it, so it's, we're, as individuals, we're little temples that all stack together make a big temple. That's the image being created here. That's why there's no competition. If you want to get to know God, get to know each other. You want to get to know each other, get to know God. This is, this is the way this works. As we grow in relationship with one another and intimacy with one another, and this is the type of relationship we should be modeling. This type of intimacy is what we should be modeling for our kids and our homes and our marriages with them, with each other, with friends. Our kids should see this. Our friends should see this. Like, this is something that would be stunning if the world saw not merely religion. Again, religion is fine. But they saw not merely religion, but an intimate indwelling that people would say like they did of the early disciples. Listen, we don't know you, but we can tell you've been with Jesus. That is pretty cool. That's the, Jesus indwells with you. So the first part of the question has been answered. Okay, 
Second part of the question. And by the way, this makes church, the attendance of church, the location of the church, not an end, but a means. It makes it almost impossible to measure success in a church. Are we successful because we have more numbers? Are we successful because we bring in more money? Are we successful because we have more activities? Maybe, maybe not. We could be doing all those things and be absolutely and utterly failing. The question is, are we growing in intimacy with one another and thus experiencing the manifested Jesus Christ? That's the question. See how hard that is to measure? As a religion, it fails. So Jesus is going to finish the question for Judas, not Iscariot, um, presumably Thaddeus. So why not the world then? If, not, if for us, why not the world? Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And here's the problem. The word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So it's not just me you're disobeying. It's the Father who you're disobeying. His ultimate authority is what you're disobeying. And that's going to create a breach of relationship. If you don't love me, you will not keep my words. That's also an identity statement. Just as much as the other is. This is a statement of who we are, not behavior modification. It's living out the truth of who we are. Keep in mind, these are not my words, but the God you have claimed to serve all along. And remember his most recent and urgent command was about loving each other and serving each other to the point of humiliation. Jesus closes on these. His words, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. These things meaning all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. So next week, when Paul comes and picks this up in this verse and begins to teach from this verse forward, recognizing what he's been teaching us, he's going to continue to summarize. Every one of these is teaching and the clarification and teaching and clarification as he wants to make sure we get this. My challenge for us is that, is that we engage with this question do I experience the manifest presence of Jesus Christ in my life? Do people experience the manifest presence of Jesus Christ in my life? That's the challenge and that's the call. Um, I'm going to pray and then Paul will come up and talk us through a, an invitation time. And then um, I just pray that you will be listening to what the Spirit is speaking. Father, thank you so much for your good gifts Thank you for your goodness and the fact that you have now declared an identity in us through your son that we are your temple. As much as I want to turn that into flowery religious language, it seems to make it pretty clear that that's just a statement of fact. That's now us. And that people, when they want to experience the divine, should be able to come to us and do so. Not our divinity because we have none, but yours that they would come and get to know us, and because of getting to know us, they would get to know you. Lord, I pray that, that we would grow in our understanding of what it is to live an intimate, indwelt life with your manifest Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would accomplish that through the power of your Spirit.